0: Two of the most influential bands in music history.
1: Joy Division held this mythology. Not knowing the history, young people hear New Order and they love it.
0: One incredible tale. They're uncompromising,
2: rebellious. They push the envelope. There's just like that darker undercurrent. Just there's nothing like it. They sort of changed the world twice.
0: This is Transmissions, the definitive story of New Order and Joy Division. Coming up in episode two, we enter the world of unknown pleasures.
3: Unknown pleasures sessions,
4: now that that is interesting.
0: To find out how the band found their sound.
4: It was like someone else made unknown pleasures and we just stuck our names on it, really, because it was written from the subconscious and we didn't know how we were doing it. We just did it and then finished it and then there was this thing.
0: ...by producing an album now considered one of the best debuts of all time.
5: I mean, we were making an album, yeah, but we were just recording all the songs that we got at that point. So when we recorded Unknown Pleasures, we didn't just go in and record
2: Unknown Pleasures and go home
0: an album whose influence still stretches far and wide.
2: Unknown territory, that's what it felt like to me. I felt like I was just getting lost in a place that I, I didn't know where I was, and I was so happy to be lost.
0: It's nearly three years since Joy Division formed, but their signature sound remains elusive.
4: Bernard Sumner. Before No Pleasures, we'd written one set of songs that was just just learning how to play our instruments, you know, how to put three chords together, basically, and that one set of songs was terrible. But I'm sure everyone's first set of songs is terrible. You've got to start somewhere. Peter Hook. You
3: were a bystander. You know, you'd written the music and you were watching your mates, friends, and associates perform, but you weren't actually stuck in the process yet because you didn't know how to do it. You knew how to play a guitar in a, you know, crappy old, freezing cold, practice room, but you didn't know how to record it. That's a synthetic bass drum. Um, it's in time. Enter this man. It doesn't sound particularly wonderful.
0: Martin made it sound wonderful.
3: With, with this.
0: A failed chemistry student, Hannett was beginning to make a name for himself in Manchester as a Maverick producer after working with the punk band Buzzcocks and the poet John Cooper Cooper. Clarke. He spotted the potential of the band at an early gig, Stephen Morris.
5: I think the first time Martin Hannett saw us was at Salford University when Bernard's amp went wrong and me and Lucky just jammed for a few minutes and just made something up. Turn it clockwise and it'll have a broad effect. And this this one is
3: high mids, really. But this this only affects overtones
0: on instruments. Soon, Hannett was hired as record producer with recording sessions booked at Strawberry Studios in Stockport. We
3: were impressed by him, by his knowledge, by his charisma. Uh, We were very quiet, we were very unworldly. We didn't know our arse from our elbows. Just went along with him, you know, and he loved it. one, two, three, four...
4: We get to rehearsals and we could communicate really well and we talk about what we've seen on TV last night or where we've been for a drink. Just talked a lot really, and uh, until we started making music and then when we started making music, we stopped talking to each other and we just all lived on our own island. It was four separate people doing their own thing really. It's very it sounds very strange. That's because it is very strange. <laughs> yeah
0: still obsessed with punk, the band knew what sound they were going for.
3: We wanted it to sound like the Sex Pistols, the Clash, because that's what we loved. You know, the power, the roar,
0: the however, had other ideas.
4: I think his attitude was these idiots that have managed to write this superb album by mistake and don't know what they're doing. So I'll get them out from under my feet and then I can do what I want without their, uh, their stupid comments.
0: Nearly a decade older than the band, Hannett instantly took control in the studio.
3: Literally, we danced to every time he wanted us. If he said jump, we said how high.
0: With an obsession for the experimental, Hannett's working style was far from conventional.
3: He insisted that we work at night because uh, he told us the studio was cheap. I think the thing was, is that it was the start of his drug thing where the night seems attractive when you're on drugs, the day doesn't. The romanticism of recording at night in Strawberry Studios was pretty spooky, pretty weird, you know, but it was nice, it was a nice atmosphere. We... The second weekend, he actually turned round and said, ''Oh, I don't think you've got enough songs.'' And we were like, ''You what?'' Uh, ''I want you to go in and write a couple of songs.''
0: And we were like, ''What?'' Stephen Morris.
5: Martin didn't think we'd got enough, so we made two songs up in the studio. Two of the songs ended up on Bob Lassiercom, doing, like, a musical fanzine, and and how many didn't actually make it? I think about three, three, so maybe five songs that didn't actually make Unknown Pleasures. So Unknown Pleasures could have ended up being shit if we hadn't, if we hadn't picked the right songs.
3: He told us to go in and write two tracks. Bernard wasn't very enamoured. And me and Steve went in. We wrote Candidate There and Then. Steve and I just jammed it unbelievably. Became the first track to feature Bernard's, yeah. which uh, whenever he played like that on a track, I always thought that it was like the least you could possibly play it be. Yeah. And Martin um, affected it, used it backwards. Um, fuck me, it sounded fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Ian would work on the lyrics at home, just remembering the track, because we couldn't record them, absolutely insane. He's nuts now. It's something you take for granted so much.
1: Ian
5: worked really hard at writing lyrics. He was great. At writing lyrics. Two of the songs, Candidate was one which was basically just we sound checking the bass and drums and we came with that, up with that riff, and then Ian just wrote the lyrics sort of like overnight. By your
2: That's all that
5: we know. We didn't have any lyrics for New Dawn Fades. Yeah, which seems incredible, because it sounds like you've been playing it all your life. But we hadn't, we hadn't been playing that vibe very long at all. We had the music, uh, but we didn't have the lyrics, and Ian was writing the lyrics and changing the lyrics as we were, we were going along. So maybe the fact that we went in and did the best songs that we did was a lie. Because <laughs> we didn't have them entirely there. There's a feeling that you did have, but I don't think we did.
0: As the band wrote and rewrote material on the hoof, Hannett's working methods became more erratic. As well as deploying an array of cutting-edge digital effects, Hannett recorded the sounds of bottle smashing, someone eating a packet of crisps, even the noise of the studio lift and toilet. At one point, he ordered Stephen Morris to dismantle his entire drum kit piece by piece in order to locate a small rattle he swore you could hear on tape.
4: Peter Hook. I think we did three weekends. Two weekends we recorded. That would have been shorter, but I unfortunately spilt a bottle of brown ale down my amplifier, which extended it by a little bit. Can't believe I used to drink brown ale. I drank brown ale because no one would nick it out of the dressing room, that's why. No one else had touched the stuff and it was sickly sweet and I liked it. One weekend we mixed and we weren't allowed there when it
3: was being mixed. I don't even remember being there for the mix. So I'm not too sure we
4: were invited. So the first time we heard it was when it was finished. So when we heard it, I think we were a bit nonplussed by at least me and Pete Hawke were. I wasn't (laughs)
3: enamoured by the mixes. I remember having many, many
4: conversations with Bernard, uh, varying degrees of annoyance. We'd done all these gigs and heard the power that we produced live on stage. Although Martin managed to capture the eccentricity of our sound and add some of his own eccentricities. It didn't
3: sound how we wanted Joy Division to sound and it didn't sound like the sound we had in our heads it didn't sound like joy division live it was a completely
4: different same songs but a completely different feel the sonith studios was a real 1970s studio and the walls were covered in thick carpet shag pile carpet and the floor was and, and there was no reflective surfaces so it was a completely dead studio so it sounded like you were recording in a vacuum with no ambience at all. And the idea was that was Martin was going to add electronic ambience after, which he did do with a thing called Marshall Time Modulator. You could do that now with the technology we have now. But in those days, the technology wasn't really up to it. So you ended up with this kind of thin, watery reverb and thin effects put on this sound that was made in a vacuum, which I guess gave it an idiosyncratic sound that made it more unusual. So there was a plus side to it, but a negative side to it.
3: If anything, I'd say that it was too mature for me at that point. I might have been writing decent, mature music, but I'm afraid I wasn't a decent, mature man in any way, shape, or form. So yeah, I was a punk. I was a screaming, angry, sweaty, aggressive punk, and I wanted our LP to be like that. When it wasn't, I was absolutely heartbroken. Peter
0: Hook might have been heartbroken, but when Unknown Pleasures was released in the summer of 1979, it was met with incredible reviews.
3: Now, you've probably heard something from their new album, Unknown Pleasures, on The Peeler Show. And the reviews have been very, very complimentary. When Richard Skinner met Stephen Morris and Ian Curtis from the band, he wondered whether they felt their isolation in Manchester was a help or a hindrance to their careers. At the time when we started in Manchester, there were only three or four other groups of the new wave type. Yet in London, there seemed to be a lot more.
2: I think in Manchester, a lot of groups expanded you know, went their own different ways. With all the attention that you're beginning to get in the music press and these incredibly glowing reviews for your album, deserved glowing reviews too, how does it feel for you as a band to suddenly be the the thing that everybody's looking at? To be honest, it doesn't affect us at all because when
3: we started, we got very bad reviews. (laughs) And then we got a few good ones and a few bad ones. Not everyone in the whole country is not going to like it,
4: so not going to bother us. Buying the music papers, um, that's when I did read reviews. (laughs) Pretty universally, really good, which took me by surprise a bit because the journalists were so cynical in those days that we'd somehow cut through the cynicism. So to get universally applauded was um, a bit of a surprise, really. I obviously thought it was great, it was thrilled over the moon, yeah, because it meant that we had a future. To find out literally within, wow, a week, two weeks,
3: all the records had been sold distributed, and they were getting ready for a second pressing. It was absolutely mind-boggling. I suppose, you know, in a funny way, looking back now, I'm so delighted that me and Barney didn't get our own way because we would have bloody ruined probably one of the greatest albums of the
5: 20th century. We were lucky. We were lucky that what we did was fantastic.
3: Martin was a difficult character, but he gave us the gift of longevity.
5: Is this an art form, or are you just a technician? Come on, serious question. Is this an art form, or are you just a technician? I don't know. Of
3: course it's an an art form, yeah. But, I mean, it's also something else. It's a living.
0: It's been over 40 years since Unknown Pleasures was released and the record still regularly appears on lists of the best debut albums of all time. It's beloved by both fans and critics but it's also influenced some of the biggest selling artists ever including Bono from U2 who had just turned 19 when the album came out.
2: Unknown territory, that's what it felt like to me. I felt like I was just getting lost in a place that I I didn't know where I was and I was so happy to be lost. It meant a great deal to me when I was, I guess, 19, 20. I think... You know, Adam Clayton, if he were here, would say Hookie's bass parts have had a huge impact. Larry Mullen, if he's here, would say Steve's drums were just really a, a big influence. I never tried to sing like Ian Curtis, but I certainly wanted to travel to territory that felt like no one had ever been there before. I always feel that's what, what you wanna do as an artist is, is find, find a place no one has been. You might need some influences to get you there, even strong influences. But I think you two synthesized all our influence and found our own unique territory. But I don't think we would have found it without having walked through through theirs and, you know, left our footprints and, you know, some car keys and bag of crisps and whatever else. One guitarist who has
0: drawn inspiration from the production techniques used on unknown pleasures is Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood.
4: My brother Colin, also in Radiohead, was obsessed with Ian Curtis and Joy Division. And every morning before school he would play Joy Division. It was like, it's the sound of dark winter mornings heading off for school and just hearing that in the sitting room every day.
2: Whee- It's,
4: it's the darkness with a strange la- layer of, because of how it's recorded, there's a strange layer of sort of sparkle and glitter to the recordings as well. There's a, it's a weird sort of contradiction to it. Because a lot of the music in the, in, that, in the 80s, such as I remember it, was kind of dark and nasty. But that was something else. That was sort of shimmery as well as sort of bleak. I don't know, it's very beautiful music, I suppose, what I'm trying to say.
0: For Blur's Damon Albarn, the way it was recorded made the album like no other.
4: It's just there's nothing like it. No-one else sounds like Joy Division. They created their own sound, and I think it sometimes it feels like the beat's just not quite there, and it's everyone's really struggling to play that well, because that's not easy to play like that. But then you get that... ..the madness of Ian as well. His words and, and his delivery are as... Are as fractured as the way they're trying to keep up with the beat and play it, and his mind's moving like that. So it's it's what you know all good music should aspire to be, especially recordings. Let's just remember what they're called. They're recordings. They should be a recording of a moment in time. Do it on a computer, unless you allow some more organic sounds in. It doesn't have that time, or eyes don't understand that time in the same way.
0: Evidence of Unknown Pleasure's global influence is provided by the fashion designer, Kanye West collaborator, and huge Joy Division fan, Virgil Abloh.
1: You know, I first came across Joy Division in my teenage years. You know, I'm from uh, a small town outside of Chicago, Illinois, which is very, like, uh, suburban in the 90s were my teenage years. And of that time... It was an interesting moment because through skateboarding, you know, it was like a, a sort of niche culture, there was this sort of merger between sort of both sort of sides of music that were contemporary at the time, you know sort of rock, new wave type sounds mixed with hip-hop, and I was coming across different bands through shape videos. You know, those skate videos sort of opened my mind to being open to new forms of music. You know, it was a way that music was transmitting through different visuals, through different scenes, through different cities. Um, and quite often, you know, Joy Division was a band that was used in these videos. And I would come across and find other bands and other music scenes from all over the globe. But that was my first sort of interaction. You know, I entered through the sort of obvious like first classic. you know, Unknown Pleasures of course. It was, it was such an, obviously an iconic album, but also it was like the, just the whole notion of what that band represented and, and like ended up on my doorstep, you know, it was like the sort of like first cut to Disorder, you know, like those songs were the ones that made it over into the skate videos that I was then sort of like a part of and watching um sort of that scene. It's
3: getting faster, moving faster now it's getting out of hand. On the tenth floor down the back stairs, into no man's land. Lights are flashing, cars are crashing. Getting
0: now. Rolling Stone later named Unknown Pleasures in its top 20 debut albums of all time, while Pitchfork gave it a perfect 10 out of 10. But it's not just the sound of Unknown Pleasures that still endures today. The album artwork, with its minimalistic style consisting of thin white lines oscillating on a black background, has become one of the most replicated, reprinted and recognisable artworks of all time.
5: The Unknown Pleasures thing is, what do they call it these days, a meme. It's a great image. I remember seeing it and saying, that would make a great T-shirt and was, we don't do t-shirts Band t-shirts are shit you know fair enough and there you go somebody else because we didn't do t-shirts somebody else I think thought putting it on a t-shirt what would these people be wearing now I
4: wonder what the wavy lines mean I've seen someone wearing a burqa with one on on the news I was watching a news item about a missile raid on Israel and there was a teenage girl running for cover and she had the unknown pleasures thing on. So it gets everywhere.
0: If you have a copy of the album, look at it now or search online. It's just the image. No band name, no photos. Soon after the album hit the shops back in 1979, in an era long before home computing or mobile phones, scant information existed about the band, only fueling their mystique. Many started to question the meaning of the artwork. Why had it been chosen? Where did it come from? Bernard again.
4: I used to work in central Manchester, a place that did TV commercials, and I was a runner. But I used to get a bit bored and I used to go and hang out in the central library in Manchester. And I'd sit there and I'd look for ideas for sleeves, record sleeves, because we just started. Just started with Joy Division, and I looked for images for posters and sleeves, and um, I found the Unknown Pleasures image in a scientific magazine. Or was it a scientific magazine, or was it an encyclopedia? And I thought this would make a great record sleeve. And uh, to see it everywhere is... That was a very productive day that day, skied off work. (laughs) Very productive day.
0: But why this image in particular? It was thanks in part to Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, A Space Odyssey.
4: I was very, very influenced by that film. And the resonance between the monolith and that was what made me pick it out. Apart from it being a beautiful image, was the shape of it. I used to have pretty bad insomnia. And I lived in a, like a council flat and... I couldn't get to sleep at night, so... TV didn't stay on late then, so... You know, I didn't get to sleep till about 4.30 in the morning. They did have a video, videotape order, so I used to watch videos. And one of them was in 2001, and I used to have the sound off. And the soundtrack for 2001 is great. But I'd seen it a few times, so I used to have it just playing in the background while I was soldiering away at stuff. And then the monolith caught my eye and stuck in my mind. I just looked at it, and there was some kind of resonance. And then when I saw the No Pleasure's image, there was a complete resonance there with that monolith because of the proportion of the shape of it.
0: The artwork was designed by another key figure in this story, Peter Saville, now considered one of the world's most celebrated graphic designers. Back in 1979, as well as helping to shape the visual mythology of Joy Division, Savile was part of a team hell-bent on making Manchester the focus of the music world. And at the centre of it all, it was this man.
5: The factory was five extremely heterosexual men, all in one way or another in love with each other.
0: Join us in episode three as we go inside the world of Tony Wilson's Factory Records.
3: Happiest moments I spent with Factory were sitting there with the glue, sticking together, you know, the Dorothy Columns first LP, sticking the sandpaper on.
0: To hear how they created a sound which defined a city.
5: People would say to you, your music sounds like Manchester. That can sound like a place. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But it does. Your environment just does. Out. Tony, and Rob particularly, love Manchester.
0: I'm Maxine Peak and this has been part two of Transmissions, the definitive story of Joy Division and New Order. The series producer is Craig Templeton-Smith. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production.